Hey, my name is Akash Thakar, and this is Sound Business. This is the podcast where we dive into the mindsets and methods of some of the top musicians, sound designers, or audio creators in the world. We're going to interview everyone from plugin makers, performing musicians, video game composers, and everything in between, and learn how they run a successful business and how they're making a killer living in the worlds of music and sound. My hope with this podcast is that you can be exposed to the many myriad different ways there are to make a killer living in the worlds of music and sound, and help you realize that there's no one right way to get to the top. And with that, let's get into the episode. My guest today is Steve Horowitz. Steve is an award-winning composer and educator who's worked on quite literally hundreds of game, TV, and film projects. Most notably, Super Size Me and practically every Nickelodeon game in existence, having composed for hundreds of Nickelodeon projects since the year 2000. Steve is also the co-author of the book The Essential Guide to Game Audio, The Theory and Practice of Sound for Games, and is the founder of the Game Audio Institute, which helps people interested in the world of game audio learn the skills necessary to succeed in the field. In this episode, we talk about the many ways there are to make it in the field of music and sound, why Steve chooses to compose for everything from TV to concert music to film to games and so much more at the same time, and many, many other topics. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Steve Horowitz. So one thing I want to start with is niches, the idea of niching as a composer. You, if you look at you on the outside, it looks like you have it because you have film, you have TV, you have games, you have chamber music, string quartets, everything. So can you talk to that about being appealing to multiple people? Because the old saying is, if you appeal to everyone, you'll appeal to nobody. So can you talk to that? Yeah. Now, you have to remember, I'll go back a little bit. You have to remember, I came into the world of game music, you know, in the early 90s. So the industry was very different than it is now. And, you know, I'm a composer. I write music. That's what I do. It's not my job to say no. I want to say yes to everything. So whether I was writing chamber music, whether I was going to be writing for a game or a film or other forms of visual media, whatever it was, I was always wanting to say yes to those gigs. Now, of course, games had a very special place for, for me. I studied at CalArts for a while and I came back up to San Francisco. I was not planning to have a career writing music for games, right? I went to Cal Arts, which some of your listeners may know is a pretty radical place, you know, and I was supposed to write music and die poor. That's what they told me. You know, it's like, <laughs> if you lose your first gig, they're like, you're doing great. That was the message. It wasn't Berkeley. You know what I'm saying? Right. It, it yeah. wasn't a commercial music program. And that wasn't what I was there for. You know, I had already been into popular music and rock and jazz and all this stuff. And I went because I've been writing all this chamber music and I kind of hit a wall and I wanted to go through that wall. So when I came up to San Francisco after all of that and really getting into studying, you know, Stravinsky and Ligeti and learning about Braxton and all these other things, my cousin came into town and one of his best friends had a company doing music and sound for games here in San Francisco, uh, Mark Miller, who was the first recipient of the Gang Lifetime Achievement Award, actually. Mark's no longer in the industry, but he got me my start. So I followed him around. The first time I met him, we were at the Café du Nord which I don't know if it's still here um, in San Francisco, but it was a club and there was a band playing. He was screaming at me. It's like, have you ever thought about making your living writing music for games? And I was like, <laughs> no. And that's really how it started, you know? Very fortuitous, right? It, it, was, it was a different time in the industry. So I followed Mark around and actually discovered that I really liked all this arcane 
information. And I really enjoyed adaptive and interactive music in a way that I, I had no idea. And I think it's influenced my compositions in all sorts of different ways. So, you know, yeah, I've done film, I've done television, I write all different types of music, but uh, uh, games have a very, very special place for me. I love the game industry and, and I love the music and the sound that, that I've done for them. I get this question all the time from, from people, whether it's at GDC or, you know, other places is like, what should I do with my resume? And with my students also now at, at San Francisco State or other places. And, you know, the answer is always the same. It's like, I want them to show their full breath as not only a composer, but actually as a human being, right? If your whole goal as a composer, like if you came up and you're like, all I want to do is write music for side-scrolling chiptune games. Then that's what should be on your resume. That's what should be on your reel. That's what you should focus on. I came from a place where I had other things on my mind. So my body of work reflects that. Mm -hmm. You said something really interesting of like, I'm a composer. It's not in my nature or my job to like say no to all these different things. I know a lot of composers like the, like they just want to write music. So there are so many composers who I know who are starting and they just want to write music. That's all they want to do. It could be for games. It could be film. It could be TV. What is that first impetus, that first step that they take if they don't know? They're not 100% sure it's a little murky. What is that first thing they do to start making that a reality? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the first impulse should be to know your craft, know your art, right? And that's really hard. For a young composer, that's super hard. It's like, who are you? I don't know. <laughs> you know, I'm 20. I don't know what what I am. But do the work. It's like when I was in high school, after school, I would go to the library. I went to school at Berkeley and Berkeley High School, and the library was right across the street, the Berkeley Library. I would go over there. They had a great collection of scores, and I would actually sit there. I, I went through modal counterpoint books, orchestration books on my own. I mean, I was a total geek. This is bad. This is really <laughs> bad. My other friends were out. It's Berkeley. They were doing lots of interesting things I could have been doing. And here I was going through modal counterpoint books. So many people are like, I want to be a game composer. And, and they can, my students can reference games way more. They're like, oh my gosh, this sounds just like the 14th level from Breath of the Wild. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll go listen to that. You know, I'm not a hardcore gamer. I, I love games. I play games. I work on them all the time. And I, I played them before that. But most important is, is the music itself, right? So, you know, before you start worrying about the job or the gig, Make yourself happy, make good stuff and follow your passion for music and see where it leads you. I didn't know it was going to lead me into 30 year career. I was going to put out a press release on this and I may one day, but I think I've literally scored over a thousand games at this point. Oh and that's AAA <laughs> game titles all the way through to, you know, mobile games. Mm -hmm. So it's scary, but at the same time, it's like I had no idea that was going to happen. So I think a lot of people these days, and rightfully so, there's more competition. The industry is more impacted. There's cool stuff happening, but there are lots of people who want those jobs. And people want to go to college or they want to go to university or they want to break into the industry, you know? And, and sometimes I think it's not that you shouldn't do those things that everybody knows you should do. Go to game jams and get your demo reel together and make sure your website looks good. All these things. Go to GDC. Talk to people. Don't be weird, you know, or be weird. Be really <laughs> weird. And then they'll talk to you even more. Actually, most of my <laughs> friends at GDC are actually very strange. But I think that that focus too much on just breaking into the industry is is sometimes a little 
And, but I understand that, you know, sometimes people are paying fifty, sixty thousand dollars or more for their education. And they're like, what am I going to do when I graduate? How am I going to pay my, my debt back? And, and that wasn't something that happened when I was uh, coming up. No one was going to school for game scoring or game music or game sound. That wasn't a thing. I really learned it by apprenticing with Mark. I followed him around and, and learned stuff. Yeah. And that's one of the best ways to learn is just to like either shadow somebody or just see what you can get from them. And can you like talk to how you kind of helped Mark? Because it's, it probably wasn't just a one way street. It probably wasn't just him like showing you stuff and you didn't give anything back or anything like that. So how can someone give to these people? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a super great question. And that is the way to think about it. And I always talk about this is enlightened self interest. So when I started working with Mark, he told me about the IASIG. You know, he was the chair of the Interactive Audio Special Interest Group. I'm like, what's that? He's like, oh, it's this organization where you'll pay $50. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. I have to pay $50 to do what? Well, you'll actually do some work with different people. in the. I'm like, $50 to work? It's like, I'm paying? But that enlightened self-interest is you have to be part of the community, basically, right? You have to be willing to give, to get. And that means, you know, join organizations like gang, join the IASIG, join uh, the IGDA, but be part of working groups, be part of making things better in the community. And by doing that, instead of just storming the castle, like I want a gig, you'll find that you make great uh, friends, you develop good relationships. And, and, and I think both you and I know that the game industry on the audio side is a small, wonderful group and a great community of people who just are wonderful wonderful folks. So that's first of all. So I, I, that is such a great question. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. And I think in terms of what I offered Mark, it gets back to your, your first question, right? Which is, which is Mark needed someone who could write music, who understood how games work. Yeah, he was willing to train me, but understood, you know, what needed to happen. And I was also an adult. So I could go, for example, he could send me over to Rocket Science Games, which at that point they were in Emeryville, and he knew that I could go over there and meet with the producers, talk to them, and he didn't have to micromanage me. So again, those social skills of being able to be part of a team, because that's what games are, right? It's, it's a team sport. Very important. Very important. Other than that, I think I just gave Mark a headache <laughs> because I asked a lot of so many questions. I'll tell you a funny story. I remember the very first time, because, you know, you would ask also, what are some of the first things you can do? And also it's a loaded question. If you want to write music, a lot of times we know in the game industry, you have to know how middleware works. You don't have to be a programmer, but you have to know what programmers do. You have to be able to speak the language, right? And I remember the first time I was doing stuff for Mark. And it wasn't always all composition. I was editing uh, voiceover for recording sessions. And this was at the time when voiceover was 8-bit 22K. This is the first time I had done this. You know, and I came from record production and playing in bands and all this stuff. And I recorded the thing and I edited it all. And then I'm downsampling it. You're going through this eight-step process, you know, bit converting and, you know, compressing all this stuff. And at the end, I'm listening to these files and I'm like, this sounds horrible. I was like, this is so bad. And then Mark came in. He's like, oh, let me hear it. And I'm like, oh, man, I don't want to play this for him. This sounds terrible. He listened to the batch and he's like, yeah, sounds great. Cool. And he walked out and I'm like, what? So, you know, you have to adjust your expectations. You know, you'll do all sorts of interesting things along the way and learn, learn different things. But it was a learning process for me. 
Mm-hmm. And there's something really important you hit on where there was this kind of bouncing around. We tend to think that, oh, here is my plan and anything that doesn't fall into this plan is failure. Oh, no. But you did a whole bunch of stuff. And I, most composers do for a long time until they maybe find a niche or some company or whatever it may be that they can kind of stick with and work with. So to the composers who are in that middle, that dip where they're like, oh, God, I'm doing like all this VO editing and I'm working on these things and they're not really my passion. What do you say to them? I say to them, you know, I won't call out any names here, but even in recent folks that I know who are friends of mine in the game industry, they would start out as junior members of a team at a place like EA or at Sony. And they're like, all I've done is rename files for the last three months and everything. But what else are they doing? They also learned how to use the audio system, right? They also became an invaluable part of the team. And then when invariably people leave or everyone gets laid off, the next time I talk to them, they're like, oh yeah, I'm running the department because they're the only one who knows the engine. So be curious. I don't have to really preach this, you know, to most of the younger folks that I talk to today or the students who come in because they're naturally, they love games, right? But be curious also about the process. As a composer, what fascinates me the most? The process of composition, right? You know, why are there similarities between John Cage and Milton Babbitt? What are they? They shouldn't be, but they are, right? So, you know, the process becomes very, very influential, important for, you know, your personal growth and your the growth of your art, right? You're an artist. I remember when I went out to the Academy Awards with Supersize Me, and I was talking to uh, Gary Chang, composer out there, and he was like, just remember, you're an artist. You know, he was telling me about Hollywood, about LA. He's like, you're an artist. He's like, the sexiest thing you could do is say no. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so, you know, it's just a process of, I never did that. I always said yes. But sure. um, totally. you, you really have to enjoy the process and all the things that go into games because unlike linear media which is more going on behind the scenes for you know creative audio folks yeah and speaking of behind the scenes something that is really interesting about your career is that you're at nickelodeon for 10 years and the very idea of a composer staying in one place for 10 years is rare now it's very very rare it's almost unheard of so i'm sure you've learned so much through that process of like working on probably lots of projects going really quickly by over and over and over again. So how are you able to stay creative in that sort of space where it's like, okay, here's a new project, here's a new IP, here's a new thing, keep going, go, 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 go. Where do you kind of sit down and become that artist in a space like that? Yeah, I've been really, really fortunate to have a relationship with Nickelodeon for as long as I have. I started actually first working in-house with Nickelodeon in 2001. I'll just let that sit and absorb for a minute. So here we are in 2022. And it's like you said, you know, there's uh, just a conveyor belt of really interesting games that are coming along. And I've always found that, again, it's the interest in the process, right? Maybe I'm still working on SpongeBob games, or maybe I'm working on, you know, other kids' games. But the process is constantly changing, right? The platforms are constantly changing. The way that we made games back in the day in 2001 when I started is very different from the way that we're doing it now. So that's one part of it. You know, the other part of it is um, if all I had done was write music as, as an audio director for Nickelodeon, if all I did over the last 20 years was write music, I, I probably would have burned out. But that's the awesome thing about games. And especially when you're working with a small team or maybe just by yourself or with a small company is that I was writing music one day 
And the next day I was editing voiceovers, right? And recording voiceover. And then the day after that, I was doing sound design. You know, I'm a composer with a big C, but I did a lot of sound design, right? And little S as a sound designer. So, you know, over the years, it's like, I didn't have to do just one thing over and over and over again. I was doing all different parts and then getting to know middleware and getting to know um, implementation and then understanding game engines. And, and again, it's part of that process that I've always found like super fascinating. So I think that's one thing, maybe that's a misconception is that, you know, you'll get into this gig and that's what you'll do. You know, you'll just write the same thing over and over and over again. And that's not really how it works. Yeah, totally. And thanks to your like breadth of experience now, you're like the Mark Miller for other people. You know, you're helping other people get into the industry. You have students, you have online courses, you're giving talks. So we're going to dive into all of that because I'm so curious about all of it. But just to start broadly, you have an educational bent to you. Did that come at some point where you said, I got to help people get into this? Or was it always there? How did that grow? Yeah. So I had, I had no plans for teaching either. Maybe I had no plans for anything and then it just all grows organically. But, you know, it was basically because right in the middle of the 2000s, I was doing work with the IASIG and I became chair of the interactive audio special interest group. And we were going to trade shows and we were going to places and getting asked all the time, how do we break into the industry? Same questions that we're asking now. What should I do with my real? And at a certain point, we're all like, you know what? We really, instead of, you know, having everyone reinvent the wheel, we should really publish some of this stuff. That was the start of the uh, game audio education working group, which had some really smart and really talented people in it. For example, Michael Sweet, who you know very well, who was already teaching at that point. And then there was also uh, David Havalosa, who was teaching at Santa Monica College, who was like, hey, I've got some lesson plans and, and some syllabus already worked out. So a bunch of us came together and started to build a curriculum because we're like, we all knew that people were going to start to go into, into colleges and universities and start to learn about game sound and that they needed to, to really have good materials to work with. So that report that was published from the Web Audio Working Group and the, the example syllabus and the example coursework, that actually is what turned into uh, the book from Scott and I, Scott Looney, that we wrote together. So that material, you know, transferred over to the book and then it transferred over into online and then when I moved from New York to um, California, I started teaching at the Academy of Art University and then at UC Santa Cruz and then now at San Francisco State, also started at, teaching at Paramind a little bit. So getting into the classroom, you know, so I have those 10 years of experience more now in the classroom. So it evolved, you know, over time. But I think what you're talking about also, and I think that was my involvement in the IASIG was always wanting that give back. And that comes from that sense of community because there are people who helped me to get where I was. And, you know, I wanted to also help other people who are legitimately going to do great things in the industry anyway. And to just, you know, if, if I was able to help a little bit, that's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And now you have the uh, Game Audio Institute as well. So you're teaching online and you are helping people right now. I know you have a course on AR and VR, which is super cool. Is there anything you've noticed over this like transition from, you know, you started in classrooms, IASIG, game audio education was first starting to now where you're teaching a subject that a lot of people want to learn, probably just online. Have you noticed something that students all throughout this time should be focusing on? Something that all students you're thinking like, okay, I, I want to get this across to them. 
Yeah. First and foremost, understand how different interactive and adaptive media is from linear media or from album production. First and foremost, I mean, that has to be, you know, really, and not superficially understood, but really to, to dig into that and understand what that means in terms of how games are built. And then, you know, make sure that you understand also the logic, right? So understand the game design a little bit, how these games are constructed, how the engines work and all, all of that kind of stuff. Be committed to the process. And lastly is, is be open to what might come your way. Because there's all sorts of things that you want to do now. But once you start to open yourself up and you're learning more, you may find that, oh my gosh, like I did, I really, really like this. I, I, I actually really want to pursue this part of it. So follow your passion, in other words, you know. Definitely a common thread for me as I talk to students. Again, don't concentrate so much on the job. Follow your passion, especially when you're starting out in your career. You know, you have that wonderful ability to go for what you want. You don't have a mortgage. You don't have kids. You don't have those burdens. And, and, and so if you can give yourself that time to like understand what you really like, just go for that. And great things will happen from following your passion. You mentioned something interesting where like students will say like, oh, I want all these things now, right? There's so many things to pursue, but you also do a lot of stuff. So I'm curious how you balance all of it. Cause one day you'll be like, oh, I'm going to write some chamber music and today is some video game stuff. I'm going to, here's a film. How do you balance all that? How do you know when it's too much? Is it ever too much? How do you figure that out? So I like to work and I work a lot and I work hard. And I think that that's like one of the keys also for us as musicians is that we have to be entrepreneurial, something I probably should have added earlier, right? Think outside the box, but just know that you're going to work harder than any of your friends who have jobs at marketing real estate companies or whatever other your other friends are doing. You're going to work harder. I don't mind it. I think it's also just because for me, music is a lifelong journey. I still feel like, you know, I'm just learning. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just trying to learn more all, all, all the time. So you're never going to know at all. Follow the things that you find interesting. And, and this is the other thing too. I mean, we get a sold a bill of goods because, you know, lots of people listen to folks like me talk or to other folks who are in the industry and they're like, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And that sounds great, doesn't it? But that's crap. Okay. There are just going to be days when it's like, I have to slog through this. I have to get this done. I do not feel like writing music today or whatever it is. I don't feel like editing, but you're going to sit your butt down and you're going to do it. So when I was at CalArts, John Adams came, you know, the composer, John Adams. And he said, I wake up in the morning and I work nine to five. I go into my studio. If I don't have anything to write, I, I sit there until five o'clock. It's like I have my lunch pail. I take a break. I take a lunch break and then I go back to work. You can get a, an awful lot done if you commit yourself to your art. And I personally, I mean, compared to like some of my idols, I mean, compared to Zappa. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, Anthony Braxton. I mean, geez, I'm, I'm slacking. <laughs> I only have 30 albums out of my own music plus the games I've done. I mean, it's like, it's like, I better get busy. <laughs> so I often feel like I'm not doing enough. And, you know, I know there's quality of life issues in the industry and you don't want to make yourself sick or, you know, hurt yourself. But, you know, so at CalArts, I studied with Stephen Lucky, Lucky Moscow. I was lucky enough to study with, with him, with Lucky. He passed away several years ago, but 
you know, when I studied with him and, you know, he would say, oh, you got to write music every day. He's like, I wake up in the morning. I always make sure I'm writing between, you know, eight and 10 and that's my writing time. And if I get more in, that's whatever, you know, and I always felt bad. I was like, shit, man. That's like, I don't do that. I'll get super passionate about something and I'll write nonstop for a month. And then I'll take three weeks and lay around and watch TV. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> instead of kicking myself about that, about that regularity, what I came to understand is that as long as you are moving forward, that's the most important part. I get a lot less done now than I used to get done years ago in some ways, but I don't kick myself for it. You know, it's like, as long as I've got my projects laid out that I'm passionate about, that I want to get done and I move slowly and things are happening every day, that's fine. Yeah. Ultimately, that's all that matters. Yeah. I mean, I think we're way too hard on ourselves about, you know, feeling like we're not measuring up, you know, it's, American culture tends to put us on a treadmill. We do it to ourselves. Totally. Totally. And you mentioned even kind of hinted at, you know, if you even if you do go into that room from nine to five, that doesn't mean it has to be good and genius every single time. Odds are it won't be. <laughs> and also, you know, for people who are starting out, realize this is what you want to do. You're going to do it your whole life. This is going to be your career. And it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take time. So, you know, get ready for a roller coaster ride, get ready for things that are going to go up and down, but it just takes time. If you get lucky, things happen sooner, you know, and if not, just keep chugging away. Good things will happen. Mm -hmm. It's true. And you mentioned even uh, needing to be entrepreneurial as well, right? On top of the writing, writing of the music. Can you talk about what that means? What are those skills? What should people be thinking about there? Wow. Well, for me, it just means creative thinking, not just about your, your music. And not just about your sound design and all your creative work, but also thinking outside the box and thinking creatively about your career. Like, do I really want to be doing what everybody else is doing? It's like you come up and it's like, oh my gosh, all I want is a job at a AAA game company. Mm -hmm. And I think that probably I know a few people and probably you know a few people who got those jobs. And after a few years, we're like, oh my gosh, this is nothing like I thought it was going to be. I know many people, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, their dream was to work on a AAA game. And then after a few years, their nightmare was to work on a AAA <laughs> game. <laughs> totally. So, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it, it's an evolving uh, process. Yeah. So what would you say those, like, or at least some of them, what are those skills are you know this creative thinking is it learning how to run a business is it learning how to talk to people yep absolutely yeah you know it's like that ad you see you know how to begin and continue a conversation you know in the back of the magazines right it's that totally. i mean you know be able to just talk to people about what it is you're doing and what why it is that you like to do that you know entrepreneurial thinking and being creative i don't think i'm very good at business okay i think i'm okay I see people who are really good and I'm like, wow, okay. And I try and do some more stuff to get better at that. But there was a point where I started, instead of not enjoying doing business, I started to really enjoy it and think creatively about it. And that was a, that was a real change for me, right? Because look, I was freelance my entire career from the eighties into, into the two thousands until I walked in for that interview at Viacom. And when I went into that interview, I'm like, this is silly. I've been freelance my whole career. You know, I've never had a nine to five jo job. I don't, in, in, this is a big corporation, you know, in Manhattan. It's like, this is weird. I had just gotten back from Europe where I was just touring around and playing and writing music. And it's like, 
you go in and then I, you, I interviewed the person who I interviewed with Christopher Romero. It's like one of my best friends now. I had no idea. So it's thinking outside the box. You know, again, I have to go back to Lucky, who was my mentor and really a great influence on me. He taught at CalArts, but also for several semesters, he taught um, at Yale. And he used to complain to me about it because, you know, he would fly there and it'd be a lot of work. And I'm like, so why are you doing it? He's like, because it makes me uncomfortable. And that understanding that when something's uncomfortable, you don't want to run away from it, but you want to actually sometimes dig into it. And I think that's part of it, too, is that that entrepreneurial thinking will lead you to places where, you know, it might be uncomfortable. And that's actually the places where we're going to learn stuff and we're going to we're going to grow and we're going to get to get deeper into what our career means, why we want it in the first place, all of those kinds of things. Because because, you know, again, a lot of times we sell ourselves a bill of goods about I need to be doing this, but maybe, maybe not. Totally. And there are all these like little things kind of in that vein that you can do to stand out, you know, obviously posting your music and sharing it, all that stuff's great. But I'm noticing a lot of composers like this is what inspired me to do it as I see people giving speeches or I see people doing critiques or whatever it may be. And I know you're giving a talk soon. So like, is that a part of that entrepreneurial thinking to get your kind of name out there? Yeah, absolutely. You know, if it's part of what you want to do, you want to become a, a little bit of a thought leader within the industry. And that's also part of what we were talking about earlier, getting back to that community, right? Enlightened self-interest. I'll go and give this talk at GDC about something I know a lot, a lot about. And in exchange, I'm going to meet some people. I'm going to do some more networking, right? And that's going to help me. That's really how, how it should work. So giving those talks, sharing your information and your knowledge with other people, is, I think it's super important. Yeah. And there's a... Uh common thing I see with people, even if they're accomplished, like, oh, well, I'm not an expert. I, I don't know anything. So what do you say to that? I mean, <laughs> that's a hard question to answer because there are a lot of people that probably you know, that people who are listening to this all know, who are wonderful, amazing musicians, but maybe they have an IT job and they do their music on the side. They're still putting out great albums or they're great recordings or whatever they're doing, but they do not want to turn their art into a business. I've always been the other way, which is I, you know, I started working in recording studios because I didn't want to flip burgers anymore. I was sick of restaurant work. I'm like, oh my gosh, recording studio. This is great. I can record other people's bands. Not only will I get better at recording, but I can use this to record my own stuff and make money. This is fantastic. Right. And I love tech and I love equipment and look, ooh, I have nice speakers or whatever. Right. <laughs> and, you know, this reverb's cool. So I think that that's part of it as well. It's sort of, again, and it's hard when you're starting out is to, is to kind of know yourself, like what things that you're strong with, things that you're not, maybe you're not the right person to get up on a, you know, a podium and give a talk, but do the things that you like to do, do the things that you're strong at and confidence, you know, you'll build your confidence. Yeah. It comes over time of through action, right? It's not just through sitting around. Yeah, really. I did not start out, dude, in my, it, like in my twenties or even when I was, you know, doing stuff in video games at the beginning, thinking like, I, I want to go to GDC and give talks or any of that stuff. You know, it, it was suggested to me at a certain point that maybe I might want to. Once I had become more involved in the industry, once I had knew more people and they were like, Hey, you should, you should talk about this. Right. So I don't think that's, you know, an end goal unto itself is to do that stuff, but, um, certainly becoming involved. You know, I think it's a weird time. You know, since we're talking about this, let's talk about weird times. Social media is weird. Mm -hmm. the, the pandemic is unfortunately horrible and weird at the same time. You know, 
the amount of disassociation that we've had, not being in the same place. At a certain point, you and I would be doing this in a studio somewhere, you know, face to face. Now we're doing this over thousands of miles, right? So that creates a separation that, that I think is harder now to kind of break through. So I have a lot of concern for my students and for the younger people that I'm working with about how do you do it? If you can't go to GDC and meet people in person and you walk around on the floor, you know, how do you make those connections, right? How do you do that? And it's becoming harder and harder. And we're becoming more and more disassociated from ourselves too. So it's difficult. You know, I'm sure that the answers for some of this stuff are pretty basic. It's like, yeah, you get your website together, you get your Twitter, you have your Facebook. I don't tweet that much. I don't do so much on Instagram. So, you know, just however it's comfortable for you, you get the word out about what you're doing. You know, it's never been easy to get press and PR or or to do that stuff, you know, but there are more channels for doing it now. And, you know, I, I completely understand a lot of my students and a lot of the, the folks that I deal with are just like, they, they're not comfortable being out there on social media and using the tools that way. And that's difficult because I think it's uh, a little bit here to stay. Yeah, definitely here to stay. And it is a is a thing I teach a lot for my students is like, okay, here's how you like do the equivalent of those in-person handshakes, but online, it's a totally different game. It's totally different. Whereas in-person can be a little more intuitive, like, oh, they smiled, cool. <laughs> whereas online, it's like, okay, they DM'd me, but they said this, what the hell do I say? It's a completely different thing. It's not natural. It's not human to see all these messages and likes and all that stuff. Yeah, it's crazy. I think one of the saddest things that ever happened was I was teaching a class one time and one of my students like came in and totally dog faced and sad. And he was like, yeah, I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, I just broke up with my girlfriend. I'm like, oh man, that's horrible. He's like, yeah, we were up all night texting. I was just like, oh, <laughs> that's just brutal. It's that like, you know, brutal. having like a deep conversation over like, you know, I'm so sorry about it. It's a terrible <laughs> That terrible. is terrible. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, in this kind of weird world, this weird landscape right now, what are you focused on learning? Like, are there things that you're trying to get better at or learning or thinking about? Yes, absolutely. One of the big things that I've been involved with recently, and, and this gets to our earlier conversation that we were having, is that I've done a lot of work in games and interactive media. I've done a lot of work in chamber music, you know, and original compositions and all that stuff. And I've really been trying to bring those two worlds together more. My most recent series of music compositions are really kind of based around that, seeing what's in common with those. Uh, for example, I just finished working on a piece called Side Scroller. Because, you know, part of what I do on a daily basis with gaming is I'm always looking at little clips of animation sometimes constantly repeating, sometimes evolving. And it's it's a lot of what we do, actually, as game composers and sound designers, is understand motion and score to that, right? Make, make sound that matches and works with it. So I got this idea for a piece, and I went to 10 of the you know, most famous side-scrolling games, from Metroid to you know, Mario, just all of these games, right? And I just started taking little clips, little small clips of these and repeating them. And I started to see these and hear these rhythmic patterns. So uh, some friends of mine play as an ensemble called the Red Desert Ensemble, and it's bass, clarinet, and percussion. Fantastic musicians. So I wrote a piece called Side Scroller, which they just 
actually recorded. They actually came out to San Francisco State and did master classes and all this stuff. And then we recorded it at the studio. I'm working with a video artist named Zig Gron, who I've worked with before on, on other pieces as well, to take these small clips and he's built them into, you know, a 20 minute piece. It's a 20 minute piece of music and they repeat and they change and it goes in between. I think Zig thought I was completely insane. I made like a demo in iMovie <laughs> that I put together <laughs> with just MIDI and then iMovie. And I'm like, here's what I'm thinking. And he's like, oh man, this is right. But Zig had really the video chops to really make it work and to create a piece of artwork out of it. And so out of that came this piece, Side Scroller, for bass clarinet and percussion. And the music that I wrote for that, it was a real learning experience for me. And it, it became a very different piece of music, something very different than what I had written before. And and for me, that's important because I don't want to repeat myself over and over and over again. It's it, it's very comfortable for me to sit down and write another string quartet for myself if I wanted to, or a piece for my my band. But this was really much harder. And the music that came out of it is really different. And I may in the future be like, oh, I love that or hate it. I don't know yet. And I don't know if these pieces are successful. So part of what I'm trying to learn myself as a composer is how I can bring these worlds together. And so there, there's another piece that actually, the first in this series is a piece called Death's Feather. And I, I wrote a woodwind quartet called Death's Feather uh, many years ago. And working with Scott Looney, now Scott's amazing, right? He's my partner with the Game Audio Institute, but Scott's also an amazing piano player. We play in groups together and bands, and we put out many albums together. But Scott also, when I first met him, was like, he was actually tasked to design a course in game audio for the Academy. He's like, I know interactive media. I don't know about games. I'm like, I know a lot of stuff about the game industry. Scott taught himself how to program in Unity, right? He already had been working on some, you know, website stuff and all that but he's he was able to go in and actually build these game lessons that we use in our classes these interactive lessons inside of unity and over the years they became more sophisticated as he got better at it so i brought him this idea and i said i want to take my woodwind quartet and i want to put it inside one of the games that we've been working on which is this music maze we use this in our classes as well it's fantastic because the students will go into the studio and will record live music for it. And then they have to take it, edit it, do everything, and then implement it inside of Unity. And it's a hedgerow maze. And the music is the only thing that you have to tell you whether you're going in the right or the wrong direction, right? So there's so many lessons of interactivity, adaptivity, what music means and how it comes across as information, right? So I came to Scott and I'm like, I want to use that, but I want to build it out. I want to put my woodwind quartet into there and also have it have a, a deeper message to it. So we worked on that together and actually that's published up on itch.io. So there's those two pieces. There's another piece that's really freaking crazy that I finished called Burger Time, which is based on the old video game Burger Time, except all of the animation motion that happens. It's played live with live players for chamber ensemble. So like, you know, the oboe is the hot dog, you know, the, <laughs> the pianist is the egg, you know. Basically, it's a long way to say that that's one of the things I'm spending a lot of time on is trying to understand how these two worlds can come together. And if I have something to say, actually, you know, because there are some really interesting uh, composers who are doing interactive and adaptive media work and all sorts. One of them is, is this composer in Germany, uh, Alexander Schubert. You might want to check out his work. 
is super cool. And he uses uh, Jitter. And so it's like video with ensemble, but the timing is crazy, crazy cool. And he has interesting work. So there's all sorts of interesting work going on. You know, I'm sort of bringing the game world into it. And and uh, there's another composer who uh, also teaches out at San Francisco State, Danny Clay, who's doing some work with games and interactive media as well and composition. So this is something we were talking about earlier, but I'll kind of get back to it, is that the other thing for students and people who are like, what can I do? And we break into the industry. When those folks come into my class, I'm like, that's cool. Do you know about the American experimental tradition? Do you know about Cage? Do you know about Monk? Do you know about, you know, jazz? You know, sometimes there are people are very focused on, well, I, I love a certain style of music, you know, conventional tonal music or whatever it is. And there's so much to be learned from understanding abstract and other forms and ways of making music, whether it's Indian solfege and tabla, you know, patterns or Iranian tunings, or whether you're listening to the European avant-garde, you know, whether it's, you know, Ligeti or whoever it is. So all of that stuff, you know, a lot of people shy away from it. It's like, oh, it sounds noisy and I don't like it. Or it sounds foreign or strange or to my ear and I don't like it. But by becoming familiar with all those other styles of music as well, it will help you as a composer for the style of music that you want to write. You know, again, it's that comfort, discomfort. It's like push yourself into the uncomfortable areas because you'll learn something about yourself. You learn something about, about your music. Totally. That's awesome. What a good answer. You mentioned something earlier during that where you said, like, you're not even sure, oh, I don't even know if these pieces will be successful or not. And I'm curious, like, in a broad sense, what does that mean to you? So a question I ask everybody is, when you're first starting, how did you define success? First starting, it could be when you're playing in bands, it could be in high school, and all the way to now, it could be today. How did you define success when you started out, and what does that mean to you today? When I started like getting serious about music, I was like, if I can record one album of my own music, my album that I put out, the music of Steve Harwood. I'm like, I'm done. I would be super happy if I just did that. That for me was, was it. And, and you know, goals change over time, but I wasn't super ambitious. I was just like, I'd love to hold a CD in my hand or an album in my hand of my own music as a band leader. And what does that look like now? What's that uh, definition change too? It hasn't changed very much. You know, I still love the process and still have com am completely compulsed to take the music from conception to where, you know, I can play it for you or say, go to iTunes. It's up there. Go to Spotify. Check it out. Great answer. So now last question, where can people find you? Plug anything. It could be your pieces. It could be talks coming up, your website, literally anything. Go ahead. So a couple of things that are, that are important. One is the, through the Game Audio Institute, which people should check out just uh, gameaudioinstitute.com. Scott Looney, who is the co-founder of the Game Audio Institute and partner, we've worked together in a lot of different ways. He does a series of what we call speedrun talks. Just go up to our website. It's up there. And that's with Brandon Reeder. He's an audio lead at Riot, Brandon Reeder. And uh, Scott's going to be talking to him about a lot of uh, similar subjects, how to get into the industry, how to break in, how to manage AAA projects and all of that stuff that's going on. So people should check that out. That's going to be really, really cool. Otherwise, two new albums that just came out. Uh, one is called The Old Monsters Trio, which is um, a series of jazz and chamber compositions for, for trio. 
And uh, the other is an album called Mr. E, which was dedicated to a friend of mine, Michael Evans, amazing percussionist who passed away last year. So there's that stuff if people want to find it. And mostly people can just go to stevehorowitzmusic.com and it's all it's all up there. Beautiful. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time. I think people are going to get some beautiful insights from this. It's great to talk to you. It's great to meet you. And uh, we have so many connections in common. So that's that's totally awesome. Totally. That's the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening as always. And considering I work in the world of video game, music, and sound, and so many people are always asking me how they break into that field, I have a newsletter set up for you. So if you want to learn how to make music and sound effects for video games and actually be paid to do it, just go to bit.ly forward slash soundbizpod. Sound, B-I-Z, pod. And that newsletter will set you up with two free courses and a bunch of free ebooks and even sound effects that'll get you set up and teach you how to work in the world of video game music and sound. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. And if you're looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to, this podcast is actually a part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. So if you want to check those out, hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.